Well, as you can see from this morning's scripture reading, we are going to be covering, believe it or not, three chapters in Genesis. This morning, as we do so, I want you to keep a hand in Genesis 20, but be prepared as we're going to move forward quite quickly into Genesis 21. And we're going to spend considerable time in Genesis chapter 22. So Genesis 20 through Genesis 22. I don't know about you, but I tend to worry. I wake up worrying. I go to sleep worrying. And I worry about everything. I worry about my job, my family, my finances, my children, our church, and the list keeps going. Perhaps you didn't know your pastor was such a sinner, (laughs) but now you do. But sin is the right word, isn't it? It's the right word. Worry is sin. Why? Have you asked yourself that question? Why is it a sin to worry? Because when we worry, we are essentially saying that we don't believe God is who he says he is. And we don't believe he will do what he has said He will do. You see? What should we do in those moments when we begin to worry? When we begin to feel just overcome by our circumstances? We must stop in that moment and we must preach the gospel to ourselves all over again. Have you ever done this? We must ask ourselves, who do we worship? We worship a God who is absolutely sovereign, one who is in control of all things. We must ask, what has our God done? He has redeemed us at the cost of his own son. And if he has given me and you his own son, then as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is just one reason why preaching through a book like Genesis is so important for a church body. The story of Genesis takes us back, all the way back to the beginning. And in doing so, it tells us who we are in light of who God is and what he has done. We've seen that, haven't we? We've seen that these last couple of months. The story of Abraham is a very long way of saying one thing. Our Lord will provide for our redemption. Our Lord will provide for our redemption. 
And that is the title of this morning's sermon from these passages. As we've seen, God chose Abraham. He called him to a land that he would give to his offspring. And he promised to bless the nations through him. Perhaps this story seems very foreign to you. But as we have seen, we as a church, as those who are united to Christ Jesus, we are right in the middle of this story. In fact, we are the nations that God promised to bless through Abraham. We are the children of the son, the offspring of Abraham. In fact, not only that, but this offspring is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate son of Abraham, and we are his children covered in his blood. And therefore, we are the recipients of all the blessings God promised to our father Abraham. Isn't that remarkable? So, believe it or not, the story of Abraham is actually a story that involves the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in it, the gospel is promised. And the gospel is essentially another way of saying, the Lord will provide. This morning, we come once again to the story of Abraham. And this time, we will see that the promised offspring that we have been waiting for along with Abraham and Sarah, this promised offspring is once again going to be threatened like never before. But once again, we will see for ourselves that the God that we worship, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this God is a God who provides, preserving his promised offspring so that one day the long-awaited offspring Jesus Christ would come and redeem the nations. With that said, I want you to look at the points on the outline. I give you three of them. Number one, in Genesis 20, we see that the promised offspring is threatened. The promised offspring is threatened. Genesis 20 shares many similarities with Genesis 12. When you read how Abraham deceives Abimelech, you feel, as a reader, like this is deja vu once again. And it really is. Genesis 12, remember, Abraham lies to Pharaoh. And he does so out of fear for his own life. He tells Pharaoh that Sarah is what? His sister. And then in Genesis 20, the text this morning, Abraham pulls the same stunt. Some things never change, right? But this time he lies to Abimelech, king of Gerar. And the result, though, is very similar, isn't it? Abimelech, like Pharaoh before him, he takes Sarah in with the intentions of having her for himself. Once again, the promised seed... Isaac, who is to come, this this offspring that God has promised to Abraham and Sarah for so long, it is being threatened once again. And so there's a tension right here in the text. Should Abimelech take Sarah 
How will God's promise to Abraham of an heir, how will it be fulfilled? How will the nations be blessed through this man, Abraham? In other words, because because Abraham fails at this point, just like he did last time, fails to, to trust in the Lord, and instead he looks and takes matters into his own hands, fearing man instead of God, because of this, this promised offspring is on the very brink of extinction. And if you were Israel, hearing this story, you had to wonder once more, how in the world are we even here? But, if we've paid any attention to the story of Genesis thus far, as readers, much like Israel, when she was told this story, as readers, we should know by now that even when God's name isn't mentioned in the text, He's at work, isn't He? And He won't let this happen. He is a God whose word always proves true. And though many times it seems like it is just impossible for His promises to come true, God always remains faithful to His Word. And so just as Abimelech is about to take Sarah for his own, God suddenly speaks to Abimelech. Can you imagine how frightening this must have been to a man who is essentially a pagan king? The God of the universe suddenly speaks something that the gods of the nations never did. Yes, they worshiped them, but they did not speak. Suddenly, the one true God has something to say. In Genesis 20, verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream and said, Behold, you are a dead man. Doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? This isn't a dream that's hard to decipher, is it? You're a dead man. God goes on to explain to Abimelech that he's been deceived by Abraham. And Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. At this moment, Abimelech, he must have just been I don't know, he must have just been shaking in fear. God Almighty has just told him he is as good as dead. And so Abimelech pleads his case before the Lord. And he tells the Lord that he is innocent. For he didn't didn't even know this was the case. He was deceived. In the integrity of my heart, he says, and the innocence of my my hands, I have done this. So God responds in verse 7, verse 6, out of mercy, and says, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Notice what God is saying here. I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart. 
And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, Bimelech, I did not let you touch her. You see what's happening here? Abimelech pleads his case, telling the Lord that he didn't touch Sarah. But the Lord reminds Abimelech and us in this text who's really in charge of this entire situation. Abimelech didn't sin because the Lord himself kept Abimelech from doing so. God did not let Abimelech lay one finger on this woman. How meticulous, how exhaustive is God's sovereignty. Making sure that his plan and the future offspring is safely protected. Do you you realize that this morning? That the God we worship, his sovereignty is not just a general sovereignty. It extends to the very details of life. That is how big our God is. Verse 7, God then tells Abimelech to return to Sarah, excuse me, to return Sarah, and and to then tell Abraham, to ask Abraham to plead and to intercede on behalf of him so that he will live. In other words, Abraham, who's God's chosen servant, is to mediate as a prophet between Abimelech and And God interceding even in prayer so that Abimelech is not destroyed. Should Abimelech disobey, he and his household will be put to death by the Lord. In verses 8 through 14, Abimelech not only calls on Abraham, you can see, can't you? The fear that is suddenly within this man's heart. He not only calls on Abraham to act as a prophet, to intercede, but he goes well beyond that, doesn't he? What does the text say? Look at verses 8 through 14. Abimelech blesses Abraham with many riches, many riches, including land itself. You see God's providence at work once again, even through Abraham's missteps. Once again, we see that the Lord often uses the terrible mistakes and even the sins of his people to move his sovereign plan forward to make a great nation here out of this man, Abraham, giving him more land. Number two. In Genesis 21, we see that the promised offspring, which was previously being threatened, the promised offspring is finally born. This is what we've been waiting for, isn't it? This is the moment we've been waiting for. It is the moment Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for for so long. For years and years, 
God had promised to them a child, one through whom the nations would be blessed with redemption. And finally, after many, many trials, the child had come. Isn't it a marvel just how short this passage is? I mean, look at your Bible. All the stories that we've read so far, how long they are. And here is the moment we have been waiting for. And how many verses is it? Seven? Why? This is just a guess. But perhaps it didn't need to be long because of verse 1. Sometimes I think we only need verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says it all, doesn't it? The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. What a beautiful verse. In other words, God was true to his promise, wasn't he? God was faithful to his word. And God brought to fulfillment his plan from the very beginning. Though it seemed impossible, and Sarah would have known this more than anyone, though it seemed impossible looking at her own body, God has given her a son in her old age. Don't you just love how Sarah responds? You can see her faith just growing by leaps and bounds. Look at verses 6 through 7. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There she sat The woman whose unbelief, if you remember, ran so deep within her that previously she laughed at God when he came and visited her at Abraham's tent. And now, now she laughs again, doesn't she? The whole town laughs, in fact. The whole town laughs as their eyes behold the impossible. Here is a woman who was at least 90 years old. And yet she nurses her child. The whole town must have laughed, but not in unbelief anymore. But in awe and wonder at the Lord that they worship, the God for whom nothing is impossible. Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21, it moves from this story, this celebration, in fact, of 
Isaac to Ishmael. And as it turns out, Ishmael is once again a threat to the promised offspring. Look at verses 8 through 21. As the story goes, Abraham threw a big feast for his son Isaac. As This was the custom at the time, as Isaac had come of age of being weaned. Ishmael, however, must have been in some way treating Isaac badly. Look at verses Look at verse 9 and following. Verse 9 says, Sarah saw Ishmael laughing. This theme of laughter keeps coming up. We're not told the details, but it may have been the case that Ishmael was in some way mocking Isaac. Now, perhaps to us, this may seem like a small insult, right? You have to remember where we're at in the story, the, the tension that exists between Sarah and Hagar as they both contested over Abraham. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn through the slave woman Hagar. But now, now, the promised son has arrived, Isaac. And so Sarah perceives Ishmael and Hagar to be a real threat. So she tells Abraham in verse 10 to cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. You see her motivation? She is very concerned and worried and perhaps legitimately so that Ishmael is in some way a threat to Isaac and to the blessings of the covenant that God promised to Abraham. It must have killed Abraham. Can you imagine? Even if this isn't the the heir of promise, it's still Abraham's son, even his firstborn son. So So while he listens to Sarah... I think it still kills him to do this. Nevertheless, in verse 12, God, notice what he does. He comforts Abraham. He tells him, don't be displeased because though he's to cast out this woman and his son, God promises that he will bless Ishmael and his offspring because he's related to Abraham. You see, though the covenant was to come through Abraham and Isaac, not Ishmael. Nevertheless, God says he's going to make a nation out of Hagar as well. And so, though Hagar and Ishmael are sent once more into the wilderness, and though it seems like death has this time actually come for them, God rescues them once again, demonstrating once more his mercy, his compassion, and his loving care for this estranged family. In Genesis 21, Abimelech returns to the story, and he initiates through the commander of his army a treaty with Abraham. Look there with me at Genesis 21. Look at verses 22 through 34. 
Abimelech recognizes that God's blessing is upon Abraham. He's seen it already. He, he knows, in fact, and this is going to be a theme throughout the rest of the story of Genesis, especially when we get to Joseph. He, he sees that when God blesses someone, it is demonstrated by God being with them. So he, he understands God is with Abraham. It shows itself even. And so, Abimelech, I think being quite wise at this point, what does he do? Abimelech strikes up a treaty, one that will make Abraham an, an ally rather than an enemy. And notice Abimelech, he makes Abraham swear to him that he will never deal falsely with Abimelech and his people. Not a bad thing to do, Abimelech, given Abraham's reputation of lying. In this case, he says to Abraham, you must swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me or my people or our offspring. And he asks that his kindness to Abraham be be returned with kindness on Abraham's part. Having sworn to uphold this promise, however, Abraham then addresses a dispute over land rights. You know, sometimes when we come to passages like this in the Bible, as Bible readers, you may be thinking to yourself, what is going on? You know, why is this in the Bible? What is the, why is this here, this, these details? Well, it's here for an important reason. Apparently, Abimelech's servants had seized a well of water And Abimelech was unaware. In order to secure his rights to the well in the future, notice that this argument has to do with land. And land is very important in light of God's covenant to Abraham. In order to secure his rights to the well in the future, a mutual agreement is made between both parties. And a covenant, again, is is agreed upon and sealed it's sealed in a very important way. Abraham gives to Abimelech, and don't miss that order. It's Abraham who gives. Abimelech is not to contribute to Abraham, lest he later say, I made this man great. So Abraham gives to Abimelech seven Lambs, probably signifying here completion and commitment to this oath. And the place was called Beersheba, which means well of seven. And with this covenant in place, notice what Abraham does. (coughs) Abraham then calls upon God. You know what the text says here? The name that is used. It says, Abraham calls upon who? The everlasting God. The everlasting God. He's acknowledging that God continues to prosper him, to bless him, to fulfill his promises to him. 
And I think it's very important that verse 33 here refers to God as the everlasting God. Because this title is in some way emphasizing that God's promises to Abraham, they will not cease with him. Abraham is going to die. But not God's promises. God will continue to fulfill those promises to Abraham even after he's dead with his Abraham's offspring. And so, God, Abraham calls upon the everlasting God. And with this divine name in mind, it's absolutely shocking what God is about to ask Abraham to do next. Which brings us to our third point. In Genesis 22, we see that the promised offspring is redeemed. The promised offspring is redeemed. With the birth of Isaac, God has finally fulfilled his promise to Abraham and to Sarah. The heir through whom God promised to bring tremendous blessing and redemption to the nations has arrived. The heir through whom Abraham will become a great nation. That heir has now come. The heir through whom God will give to Abraham's offspring the land of promise is now here. You see? So it is totally a shock when God then commands Abraham to sacrifice this same heir. You see just how shocking this is? How perplexing this is? You can, ima- you can imagine, can't you, the rush of emotions and confusion that Abraham must have felt in this moment. But this is the heir of promise, Lord. This is the one you told me to wait for. You you told me this is the son through whom my name would be great. And now... You are commanding me to sacrifice him. You add to this the the outrageous thing God is asking Abraham to do kill his own son as a sacrifice to the Lord. Surely Abraham would have offered himself up before offering up his own son. Again, 
Imagine the flood of emotions. How can I possibly kill my own son? I love this child. He's my son. He's my heir. He's my own flesh and blood. He is my only son. How can I end his life? We can, we can feel in the text just how personal this is. Notice in verse 2 how God phrases the command. He doesn't just say to Abraham, sacrifice your son. It's not what he says. Look at verse 2. He says to him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Can you even begin to imagine? One of the advantages of being the reader is that you and I, right from the start of the story, are let in on what is happening. Sometimes this sword cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, we're relieved to be let in on what is happening behind the scenes. But at the same time, I think it's a struggle for you and I to grasp just how awful this must have been. Because we know ahead of time, sometimes we're even given clues ahead of time as to what's to happen. This is what happens in verse, if if you look at verse 1. Genesis 22.1 says, God tested Abraham. In other words, this whole thing is a, it's a, it's a test. But we have to remember, though we know this looking back, we have to remember that in this moment, this was not something that Abraham was told, was it? Instead, God only gives Abraham a command. Go and sacrifice the son whom you love. In that moment, Abraham has two choices. One, he can disobey the Lord. Two, he can trust the Lord and obey him. It's very simple. How is Abraham to decide this? How is Abraham to decide this? At the heart of disobedience is not merely a defiance in one's actions. Let's just pause for a second here in the story. I want you to reflect with me on the the mechanisms of what takes place with obedience and disobedience. At the heart of disobedience is not merely a defiance in one's actions, right? It's not just the external. 
that's a, that, that is the result of what is going on in our hearts. For one, des, one decides to distrust the Lord and disbe, disbelieve in your heart that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. But just the opposite is true in the moment of faith. How does faith work? Faith means you really do believe God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has said he will do. Notice disbelief is something that distrusts the Lord and instead it looks within. That's what happens every time you sin. But faith, faith surrenders one's feelings and emotions even. And instead, it looks outside of oneself, trusting in the character and actions of another. If you didn't get all of that, this is the point I'm trying to make. Okay, this is the point. Faith is faith because it is grounded in knowing who God is and what he has promised. Let me say that again. Faith is faith precisely because it is grounded in who God is and what God has promised. When Abraham decided to obey God in that moment, he trusted in God. He trusted in the promises of God. In that moment, Abraham knew that God would stay true to his promise, that he would make a great nation out of him and his heir. We we get help on this from Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 tells us just that. Listen to what Hebrews 11 verses 17 through 19 say. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. This is the author of Hebrews reflecting on what is happening with Abraham in this moment. Don't you just love it when the New Testament does this? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And notice what it says next. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it, is, it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There's the promise. He, Abraham, catch this, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, in the midst of all of his fear, Abraham's grief and his confusion, which had to be enormous confusion in that moment, Abraham, he remembered that the God who was giving him this command was the same God who had promised him that he would give him a son. And then God came through on his word. 
That is the God we are talking about. And he was the same God now who promised him that he would make a great nation out of this same son. We often think that faith is just a blind leap in the dark. Not so. Not so. Abraham's faith, it was rooted, grounded in the very character of God himself. As well as his divine promises. Isn't this why Hebrews 11 can say at the beginning of this chapter, this great chapter that expounds on the faith of these men and women, isn't this why it can say faith is it's what? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the conviction of things not yet seen. So while Abraham may not have understood why why God was asking him to do this outrageous thing. And while Abraham may not have understood how exactly God would now fulfill his covenant promises, Abraham knew that the God, and maybe he knew this with trembling hands, Abraham knew that the God who was giving him this command is a God who is always faithful to his promise. And his plan, it never fails. So strong is Abraham's faith. In this moment, says Hebrews, This is remarkable. Abraham believed that God could even raise his son from the dead. As Christians, this side of the cross, what a true belief that was. Abraham believed he could raise Isaac from the dead to carry on his covenant promises. And, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid his son on it. And the two of them walked together to the place of sacrifice Surely Isaac didn't understand, at least not everything. Father, he says, Father, where is, where's, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, Isaac, think about this. Isaac knew his father was a man who worshipped the one true God. He saw it every day. He was familiar with the need to offer a sacrificial lamb for worship. But this time, there's no lamb. And notice Abraham's response. Notice Abraham's faith. 
What does he say there in verse 8? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, son. So Abraham built the altar, bound his son, laid him on top of the wood, and he raised his arm, knife in hand, to do the unthinkable, to slaughter his own son. Have you ever thought what this must have sounded like if you were an Israelite hearing this story for the first time, which was the intention of Genesis being written? (laughs) No doubt Israel, she was hearing this story retold, would have understood that at this moment, their future line, it it was over. But in that moment, God stops Abraham. And Israel is redeemed. God stops Abraham. And Israel is redeemed. An angel of the Lord commands Abraham to put down his knife. Because now the Lord knows that Abraham fears God. For Abraham was willing to give up his only son in order to obey the Lord. It's at this point in the story when we are just in awe of Abraham's faith that we are also reminded of God's amazing provision. People, it is no accident that at that moment, Abraham looks up and there in front of him is a lamb, a ram to be exact, caught in the thicket by its its thorn, its its horns. The text doesn't tell us, but I wonder if in that moment Abraham, he, he, he just cried seeing that, that ram, realizing that the God who had tested him is the God who provides redemption for his people. A burnt offering was necessary. A sacrificial lamb was necessary. And just as Abraham told his son, God provided the sacrificial lamb that day. It was true. It's the same God who would one day fulfill his promises to Abraham, making a great nation out of him, giving to his offspring the land of promise, and one day blessing the nations through another son, another offspring, God's own son, God's own lamb. And so, appropriately, Abraham names that place, the Lord will provide And God responds by swearing that because Abraham has not withheld his son, God will bless Abraham. He will multiply his offspring. He will give him victory over his enemies. And he will bless the whole earth. All because Abraham obeyed the voice of the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps you have questioned God's actions here. And have asked 
maybe out of anger even, how could God have asked Abraham to do such a thing like this? How could God have asked Abraham to do this? To kill his own son, his only son. Brother, sister, do not forget that God did not ask Abraham to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. Have you forgotten that the father sacrificed his son, his only son, for you? In a story like this, we may be tempted to view Isaac as a type of Christ to come. In reality, though, I think it's the lamb caught in the thicket who very much pictures Christ. That ram is substituted in Isaac's place, sacrificed so that Isaac and Israel to come could be redeemed by the Lord and live. Live. Is this not what God has done for you and for me in Christ? It is for this reason that John the Baptist appropriately labeled Jesus, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is for this reason that Jesus himself says he came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. It is for this reason that Peter in 1 Peter 1 says we were ransomed with what? precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. It's for this reason that John, 1 John 4, says God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it is for this reason that a gospel passage like John 3.16 makes perfect sense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Fellowship Baptist Church, Our God, your God, loved you so much. Just think about this statement in light of last week's sermon on the wrath of God and the cross. Your God loved you so much that he sacrificed his son his only son, for you. On that cross, the son of Abraham, the lamb of God, was your substitute. The very sacrifice for your salvation. Fellowship Baptist Church, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide.
the Lord will provide for this church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as sinners deserving the wrath that we saw last week in Genesis 19, what good news Genesis 22 is. You could have left us in our sin, but you sent your only son as a lamb be sacrificed so that we would live. We have no better news than this. And with what joy we now worship you. May we as your people covered in the blood of the Lamb be those who with great joy Tell others about this good news that even here in Genesis we see the beginning of. You are faithful, you are sovereign, and you have and will continue to provide for us our redemption. It's in the name of your precious Son we pray. Amen.